17-year-old Angela Freeman was last seen on September 10, 1993 here at the old Pizza Hut in Petal. This was the last place that we ever, that anybody ever saw her alive. 17 years old, five months pregnant. Her bloodstained car was just north of Perry County's Monette Bridge. There's a possibility she might be in the river, so we're checking the river right now with the dogs. Rescue workers are searching the river with dogs, and they are also searching the wooded area here. She was, um, had come in from work, and she gave me $80 to pay on her car that we found abandoned out here in Perry County. At this point, we really don't know any more than we did before until we can find her. We're still hoping that it's just not real, you know, that, that she's going to call and say she was, maybe she was abducted and will get away or something, but, uh, it just really doesn't look good at all. And we're working hard every day. We want this case solved. As we near the end of Angela Freeman's story as it stands today, there are three things I know without doubt. The first, Angela's undying love for her brother Nicholas. The two might fuss and fight as siblings sometimes do, but she would do anything for her little brother. Her friend Mary, whose name we've changed at her request, spoke of it. And she loved her brother unconditionally. Always wanting to check on him, always wanting to make sure he was okay. And her friend Kim added, Your little brother? Yes. Yeah. Maybe she loves him. That's what everybody has told me. <laughs> she, that, man, when she would see him, like whenever, you know, I'll tell you, that it was like, she was being like a little Christmas tree when she'd light up. Cause, which, whenever, look at Nicholas's little baby picture, you'll see why. <laughs> Angela had a heart-to-heart talk with her little brother just a couple of weeks before she disappeared, according to Nicholas Freeman, who was 14 at the time. She told him to avoid drugs, never do them, she said, and choose your friends wisely, she added. He believes now that she was trying to tell him that she had gotten around a crowd that wasn't good for her, but he couldn't have imagined at that time one of those people might end his sister's life. The second thing, her love for Stephen Lindsay, her inability to let him go, and for her to move on from her relationship with him. Neighborhood friend Melissa Austin McSwain got emotional telling me about her memories of Angela and how she would go on and on talking about Stephen. Back in the 1980s and early 90s, Kids would exchange handwritten notes with their friends, a prehistoric text message of sorts. Melissa has kept some of those notes Angela wrote her, noting her teenage undying love for Steve. I know that at the time, she really loved Stephen Lindsay. I give her mother two letters that I had that Angela had wrote me. I had bunches and bunches of letters, but for some reason I just kept those two. She made copies of them, and they weren't really anything in detail except for that 
you know, we're teenagers, right? Well, I love so-and-so. And she had said, we own the, you know, letters. I love Stephen all over the letters. Ruby, who married Larry Posey, also remembered how much Angela still carried a torch for Stephen even after they'd broken up and he had moved on to a new relationship. I had had conversation. That was her heart. That was her love. That was the person she wanted to spend the rest of her life with. Um, That's who she wanted to be with. These two things, her brotherly love for Nicholas and her fierce first love for Stephen Lindsay were echoed by everyone who knew Angela, without exception. The third thing, her terror of the dark and of being scared. This fear is why many of Angela's family and friends have trouble believing she would have driven herself to the Monted Bridge that September night. She told her friend Mary one night a couple of years earlier when several friends were at the bridge and she had gotten scared that she never wanted to see that bridge again. But we all know the old saying about never saying never. Angela's brother agreed she wouldn't go to the bridge, at least not by herself, because she was even afraid to watch scary movies. But all of us act out of character sometimes, or for some people in ways that we wouldn't act for others. And sometimes we make crazy choices when we are in love. You are listening to the 10th episode of Telling Lives, a reported podcast series covering old stories in a true way. I'm your host, Elizabeth Christian. Growing up, my dad was the advisor to the student newspaper at the high school where he taught history and my mom taught English. I remember as a little girl watching him and his students paste up the stories on large broadsheet sized pages and being inspired by their ink stained fingers after they typeset the headlines for the weekly edition of The Breeze. I grew up listening to the stories of my dad from his youth, standing up for causes, writing letters to the editor as a young man, not hesitating to write the governor just as easily as he wrote a cousin in Alabama. He taught my sister and me that all people were equal, and when he saw what he perceived as injustice, he called it out. My children often remark, usually when they tire of waiting for me to stop talking to someone at the grocery store or church, that I never meet a stranger and get into comfortable conversation with people everywhere I go. I get both of these traits from my father. I often share memories when I'm in my classroom telling my journalism students some odd little bit of trivia from a story or a summer vacation to whatever presidential home or historic site that seems to fit into the lesson's narrative. What would I be doing today were it not for watching and admiring the journalism of my father in my adolescence? My desire to know things and solve real life puzzles and ponder historical conspiracies from JFK to Lizzie Borden to the little-known Newman-Pritchard feud in rural Butte, Mississippi. My need to try to figure out the why and the how often take over and drive me to go to the sites of some of the places I can't get out of my head, as if the answers will become clear in that space. 
I started this podcast about Angela Freeman in episode one, offering a little insight as to why this was the story I wanted to tell and how it personally affected me as a college student in 1993, the same year that nationally, the biggest story was the tragic loss of life at the Branch Davidian compound outside Waco, Texas, after the federal government held leader David Koresh and his faithful followers under a 51-day siege ending in untold horror. Some of you may have watched the six-episode Paramount series last year. If not, I highly recommend it, as it's based on both the lead FBI negotiators and a survivor's story. What I didn't tell you was just how much that deliberate hostile action from the government, as I saw it then and still do, impacted my life and my thought processes about the relationship between us and our government. The tragic story of Angela Freeman is also an example of this, and local government's failure to simply do what it was supposed to do, nothing more. Just treat a missing teenager, regardless of any other knowledge about her, as a crime victim, given the evidence clearly noted within days at the scene. Failing to do that, however, the local authorities should have at least owned up to their failings and immediately called in help from other agencies. Rather, some are still making excuses for failure to act. After a quarter century, it's past time to take the enormity of evidence that does exist and make the best case possible or close it so the record or lack of it is accessible to the public. I recognize there's a lot I don't know about this case, but I've also seen several cold cases in the hands of investigative journalists turn over evidence that was missed in both cases that weren't solved or were solved erroneously. It's past time and the technology exists. Just a decade ago, I finally made a pilgrimage to the site outside Waco where over the 51 day siege that began February 28, 1993 and ended in complete failure and devastation in April, in totality, 86 lives were lost. I needed to try to find a reason. I found none. The buried school bus and small chunks of the burned up buildings were still in the field, near where the church building has long since been rebuilt. After you pass the roadside, where a memorial stands in honor of those lost. I keep a piece of that bus in my office as a reminder that even America, the country I dearly love, has made costly, egregious decisions. We must learn from them and do better. State and local governments are the same. Without oversight and a free press, what would they devolve into? I finally sat down with Mary one afternoon in January outside her parents' home in Petal. Unlike most of her friends growing up, she lived in a stable two-parent household. Sadly, however, Mary tragically lost her older sister at age 13 when she was just 11 years old, and that probably made her bond even more deeply with her girlfriends in junior high and later high school. They were all broken, she says, just in different ways. Then, losing Angela, who had become like a sister to her, was another devastating loss at a young age. There was 
a really freaky situation one day that kind of freaked me out, um, which I had to step in front of Angela. And I was like, it's, you know, look, let's just go, you know. I told Miss Deborah, I said, you know, um, Mama's out there waiting, so we're just going to go on. And so when she realized I, my mom was out there waiting, um, I was going to leave with uh, Angie, and Angela said, hang on just a minute, I can't leave without telling my brother goodbye. And she loved her brother unconditionally. Always wanting to check on him, always wanting to make sure he was okay. And uh, so we got in the car, we come here, and she spent, I think, the weekend with me that weekend. And uh, there were several times that we would go and get her. Me and my mom would go and get her if she called and, you know, wanted to come and visit and stuff. Uh, we would go and get her. There was no questions asked if I, you know, Mama, can we go get Angie? She was like, yeah, baby, we can go do that. Because um, Mama need, knew I needed somebody, too. Even though I had my little sister and I love her to death. I mean, because that, that's my little sister. My mind was in a different place because I had lost my best friend as my older sister. Someone I had grew up with because we were only, you know, we're not even two years apart from each other. And um, so uh, that's why she let me have my friends over pretty much any time. I'd make a tent and in the summertime, <laughs> and we, even Casey done it with me, uh, we would get in a tent, and if they didn't want to stay all night in the tent, we'd come back inside, <laughs> or, you know, but we'd have our little lights going, Mama would bring some snacks out there oh, yeah, for us and stuff. All this was not there at the time. <laughs> so this is where I would put the tent right here, and, um, but, um, I just try to make it as fun for them as, as I could while they were with you know, with me. Mary told me she doesn't believe to this day that Angela would have driven to the bridge of her own volition because of something that happened out there a couple years prior. There's this one night that I really want to explain. It was me, Bobby Collins, Roy Chisholm, and Angela Freeman. Uh, she was like, I really don't want to stay here tonight, you know, and this, that, and the other. I don't know. I can't remember what was going on, but I know she was upset. So she was like, I can sneak out and y'all can meet me on the road right there behind the house. And I was like, girl, you don't need to be sneaking out. I'll just call and see if you can stay the night with me, you know. And she's like, no, she's not going to let me go nowhere tonight. Well, that was the only time we'd done that, you know, and I felt bad after we'd done it. But um, it's something that all teenagers do, you know. I never snuck out or anything because I didn't have to. I mean, all my friends were around here and stuff, so we just, you know, if we got out in the middle of the night, we was walking on the streets, you know. We had the fire chief over here watching us, my military dad over here watching us. And, <laughs> uh, but so we go and we pick her up that night. Is that your dad? Yes. Okay. I thought when you pointed that way, that was from your dad. <laughs> and, uh, so we went and picked her up that night, and she was like, oh, so what are we going to go do? And I was like, I don't know. Um, I was like, y'all, what are we going to go do? They said, well, let's go get some uh, Mad Dog 2020 and stuff like that, you know, because, <laughs> hey, that was a quick buzz, you know. <laughs> so it was like, okay, yeah, we were all for it. 
And then, so, went and got the Mad Dog 2020. I remember, like, it was yesterday. Um, she had um, banana, and I had the grape. I like grape, and she liked the banana. Well, and they come in these little, I guess, pint bottles or something, um, quart bottles. But um, we were sitting there drinking on that. We was just all four goofing off. And then we ended up going down to Monard Bridge. As you first get to the bridge, um, there was a little, there was a big old oak tree or a pine tree or something other right there. I can't remember what kind of tree. That we we sat right there at the bottom of that tree. We was looking at the bridge, you know, and it was it was late at night. And um, I can't remember which one, if it was Roy or if it was Bobby, bringing up these old ghost stories and oh. stuff. Okay, <laughs> and they were talking about. Um, the things that supposedly happened on that bridge and stuff and that you could hear the people if you get real quiet you could hear the people uh, uh you know and um I what really freaked her out she was already ready to leave when it got to that point you know because she was like hearing stuff after that you know and I was like it's okay girl if anything comes out of these woods I've got you you know and uh she was like uh-uh well boy started climbing the railing of the bridge get on top and that freaked her out because she thought that he was going to fall to his death right. you know and at that time you know he liked her you know but i don't think she too much liked him it was just that she was with me that night and it was just you know four of us but um anyway um so when he starts doing that she really goes to freaking out she starts crying she's like oh get down you know so i tell him you know we both me and bobby tell him get down and he come over there he's like he's like girl what not gonna happen i wasn't gonna fall and she, he was trying to calm her down and she was like i'm just ready to go and she was like hysterical like i knew when she said these words she meant every word she said she said i never want to see this place again i never want to come back down here i'm terrified of this place just from the simple ghost tale that was said and then him climbing up on the bridge it kind of just longer around and so i was like that's it guys we're leaving she don't want to be here no more and she's serious i don't want to put her through this you know and she was like thank you so much and i was like you know girl if i if that was me and i wanted to go i would you know hope you said let's go so um we left so i know for a fact there's no way no way and you can ask these other two people that were with us, Bobby and Roy. She was horrified that night, and she would never go back there, willingly or by herself. But she did go back, several times in fact, in the company of Stephen Lindsay, according to her mother, Deborah. And, in a horrible twist of fate, it would be this place that she had begged to leave and to never see again, that would be the site of her death, almost certainly. Longtime friend Casey Prynjani said it would have taken someone very special to Angela to get her to go out to such a creepy place as the Monted Bridge. She broke it off with this guy, Stephen, which his sister says, no, he broke it off with her, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what happened there, but um, just for her to be up there arguing with him at the Pizza Hut, Mm -hmm. And then right after that, you know, they find her car. The fact that it was at Monted Bridge really creeps me out because yeah. uh, 
that place just has a horrible reputation. There's been some awful things that have happened there. Did y'all ever go out there when y'all would sneak out? You know, that's a good question. I don't think that we ever did. I remember the times that I went to Modern Bridge because it was just a few because that place just really always creeped me out. Like, I never cared for that place. It just was something very eerie about it. I don't remember me and Angie ever going out there, but like I said, we weren't scared of much. I do remember being creeped out by that bridge, though. And um, I think for Angie to have gone there to meet to meet somebody, it was somebody that she trusted and she loved. Beth, um, if it even happened like that, if she, I mean, her car was there, did she drive there? It seems like maybe she drove there and she met someone. Um, I don't know. The day Mary and I sat down in person and talked had been months in the making. Losing Angela, after having lost her sister just a few years earlier, was a wound that had never healed, and it took her time and a lot of soul-searching before she was ready to open up to me. She actually took me back to the day the five girlfriends took the picture together that we discussed in a previous episode. But then, okay, we reached high school. And I'm going to take it to the day we got our picture taken. Not going to mention no names. But one of them didn't have enough money to have their picture taken for that school year. And so, me and Casey got together and said, like, okay, look, let's pitch in. We got a few dollars left over from the day. Let's all pitch in and let's do a group picture. And... So we got the other girls together, and we was like, we're going to do this group picture. You know, we got, this is our last day. We can't do it. We ain't got no other day to do it. And so we did. We pitched in together. We had just enough money to, to do it. The, the, the man said he didn't normally do it, but he would do it because we paid for it. And um, it was the only one that anybody ever got to take like that. Um, nobody ever got to take group pictures for school. And... I just hate that we didn't have any more pictures like that together because that was a good group. I mean, we all had our problems and stuff, but we wasn't really bad. We wasn't bad kids. We just had bad dealings, you know. So we worked through them the best way we knew how. Then we got to the end of Angela's story. In the summer of 1993... Deborah and her children moved to the house they would share with Bill Stewart, whom Deborah married two weeks before Angela's disappearance. Even though Angela and Stephen Lindsay had broken off their relationship early that year and he was seeing someone else, Angela still carried a torch for him. Several friends, and even Larry Posey, who Angela dated in 1993 and was possibly her unborn child's father, spoke of Angela's continued devotion to Stephen. We have reached out to Stephen several times and through friends to talk to him, but he has not responded. Angela's friend, Melissa Austin McSwain, and her brother Nicholas had both seen them together after they had broken up in 93. McSwain recalled after Angela went missing, sharing her knowledge and pictures of them together with an investigator at the Petal Police Department but nothing ever came of it or the items she turned in. Years ago when I spoke with um, David Bassett. Okay. And 
I gave he, he took he got copies of the letters that I had too, and I had some several pictures. You know, while we were in school, I had I guess three or four years of her school pictures, and I had probably about four or five pictures that she borrowed my camera one time. And back then it was just uh, you know the little thirty five one ten. It was a one ten film, and I, I wish I had all that stuff uh, but it, it was the year 93 <laughs> and I don't I don't know who took the pictures but it was at her house where we lived on Trailwood Circle one picture that I had forgot to show them at the time but her and Stephen had actually taken pictures in one of those little photo booths at the mall uh-huh. black and white but I had forgot to show that to them and I think I still have that I tried to contact David Bassett, but he did not respond. Bassett is currently a candidate for sheriff in Forest County, Mississippi, where Hattiesburg and Petal are located. Deborah told me Stephen had been to their house in the summer of 93. I come in and Nicholas one day said, Mama, you know Stephen was here? And I said, what? Apparently Stephen. That was the earlier. Yeah, the same one to Pizza Hut. He started coming back around to the house that we just live in. Mm -hmm. But but he had a new girlfriend, too. His girlfriend didn't live in Mississippi. She lived out of state. So naturally, he would go see her, and he, she would never know that he was still seeing another one on wow. the side. Okay? But anyway, uh, I asked Angela. I said, is Stephen coming around here? He came by, you know. And plus, he come by one day and changed your tire in, in, the, par- in the parking lot. But let's get back to Mary. She was probably Angela's closest friend and confidant at the time of Angela's disappearance, even though she had gotten married and moved about an hour and a half away from Petal. Um, matter of fact, uh, when I got pregnant and she found out about me being pregnant, she was so excited, you know, and I was relieved that somebody was excited <laughs> because I was scared, and, you know, so... Uh, that's, you know, another reason why we stayed so close together and everything, you know, because I looked at her and I seen how excited she was. And immediately I told her, I, I want you to be the godmother of this child, you know, and she was like, what? And I was like, yeah. And at the time we didn't have a name because we didn't know if it was boy or girl or anything. Matter of fact, the whole pregnancy, we thought it was a boy. Um, so when, when Savannah Lee was born, um... It was very emotional, happy, excited, scared, you know, because I was just a child, having a child. Um, But immediately, uh, I already had a name picked for a girl. I already had a name picked for a boy. But the moment she was born, that all changed because she didn't look nothing like those names. And I told Angie, I said, I'm giving her your middle name. I said, I want her to be a part of you because you're going to be a part of her. You know, if anything happens to me, you know, I would help you take care of her, you know. When was she born? Um, she was born June the 2nd of 92. And uh, so Angie did get to spend some time with Savannah. I was, I was 
going through my divorce with Bobby and everything, um, they had started seeing each other at one time, you know, talking and hanging out and stuff. Wasn't nothing really serious. I knew it wasn't, you know. Um, but I was glad in a way because I knew she would be around my daughter when he had my daughter. So I felt safer with my daughter, you know, being there. And, um, uh, I get a phone call from my mom. I had moved off. And she was like, she's like, don't. She says, oh, have you heard from Angie? I was like, no. I said, why? And she said, well, she called me today at work. And she sounded all upset and everything. And she was really wanting to get a hold of you. And when my mom said that, I immediately, my mind started going, okay, wait a minute. I got to find somebody to get my kids settled with because by then, you know, uh, it was just, I had, I knew something was wrong. So I left later on that evening because it was late that, late whenever she remembered to call me and tell me. So I'm like freaking out because I'm like, okay, how many hours ago was that? Okay. And she was upset like that. So I'm freaking out now. I know something's wrong. She had done told me uh, a few weeks before that when I had come down here to get Savannah back um, that they that this, there was people trying to hurt her, that she was really scared of some people. And I was like, what is going on, girl? Because she was walking down the street, and I, she was coming off east. She was on East Hardy coming towards Petal, so I pulled over, and... And she was all upset and everything. She's oh, I'm I'm so glad you know. This you was come back this way. in August when you. And um, this was I don't remember what month it was, but um, she had told me that some people were really scaring her and stuff. And I was like, well, who are you with? Who are you hanging with now? Because by then, you know, we had kind of everybody had kind of been doing it. It was on their own way with different things. And she told me Ruby and them. And I was like, well, what the heck? I mean, y'all were supposed to be friends. Y'all were pretty much living together or whatever. You know, what's going on? And that's when she told me that she was pregnant. That she had just found out. She had just found out she was pregnant. And uh, she told me that she had been threatened by Larry. Uh that he didn't want Ruby to find out that she was pregnant. So so Angie told you that Larry was the baby's father? She didn't tell me that he was the father, but she told me that he told her that, she, that Ruby better not find out. So Larry thought he was the father, right. at the very least. And so when she said that, I was thinking, wow, that was a big off step for her. You know, not saying the color or anything, just mm -hmm. saying it, that was a big off step for her. Did you know but, that she had been seeing Larry before that? No, because I wasn't around. I just knew that I knew that she was staying over with Ruby and him, but I did not know that she was actually seeing anybody. The last time Mary saw Angela, just a few weeks before her disappearance, she was in town to exchange children with her ex. Do you know where Angie had been living with them? No. Where that was Petal, Oak Grove, Hattiesburg? I think it was in Hattiesburg. 
because like I said, when I picked her up off the street, she was coming from Hattiesburg on East Hardy. So East Hardy was like, I don't even know why she was over. I know she, she, I knew, I knew she'd been going through some difficult times just by looking at her. That is an interesting place for her to be walking. Yeah. It was strange to me. Because none of that makes sense. And for her to even be walking. For her to even be walking. Yes. I Where honestly she always had a ride. If it wasn't from me, it was from one of her other mm-hmm. friends until she got her car. But you know, it was just I'd never seen her walking down the street like that. Never. So um, and that's when she was telling me, you know, about, you know, being scared. She just found out she was pregnant. And then the last time I had seen her before she come up, gone. Now, um, this is curious to me. This is something that I wondered. She was scared. Several people have, you know, commented that she was scared. She was pregnant. She was in fear for her life. But I mean, it, it was to that point. From the family's point of view. I don't hear them knowing any of that. Why did she not share any of that kind of fear with them? Maybe it was to protect her brother. That's the only thing I can think of. And not only that, I mean, I don't, I don't think she wanted her mom to know the actual true depth of where she was at in her life, you know, because she, like I said, I mean, when I found her that day, she, you could tell she'd been through some different things. Yeah. And I and I did. I, I I felt really bad, you know, because I had to go back home, which was away from here. And yeah, all the time I think, you know, if I just told her, look, don't worry about any of that. Just come on, you know. I've got a house. I got an extra bed. You know, you can just. I'd still have my Angie. And we'd be enjoying our kids and probably our grandkids together, you know. But some things friends have to learn on their own. She loved Angela, even though she recognized that she was searching for love in the wrong places. It was the evening of September 9th, after Mary's mom got off work, that she told her about Angela's phone call. The night that I come down after that phone call from my mom... I got there late. Where did you go? Straight to Pizza Hut. Straight to Pizza Hut. Why did you go there? Because if anybody had talked to her that day, I knew Steve had. Because she she loved Steve. Still. She loved Steve. Even though she wasn't seeing him. She loved Steve. And so when I got there, after they had done clothes, because there were no vehicles there besides the people that was working there, um... I could tell that there was one other person working there, but I couldn't see who it was because I was outside. If you pull into the Pizza Hut lot, like you're pulling in, like you're supposed to, and you go all the way around the back and come in, like you're coming out. Okay, I parked beside his vehicle, by Steve's vehicle. And Do you remember what he, time it was? He was, he was uh, he's, I guess he had saw me and he'd come out the door. And I, was, I got out of the car and I was like, hey, Steve, I said, have you seen Angie today? And he was like, she just left. And I was like, well, where did she go? He said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? I mean, that, I just, it was just because I, I knew how she was. I knew how their relationship was. And I was like, why would she just 
you don't know. She would have told you, you know, well, I'm going to go here. That's just the type of person she was. Um, he said, I don't know. He said, I, I got a phone call. had to go in and answer a phone call. And when I come back out, she was gone. I said, well, what, what was y'all talking about? And he told me himself. He said, well, she come up here, uh, want me to get back with her. And she was all upset and crying and everything. And I told her, I just flat out told her, no, we're not. You're not going to mess up my engagement. Uh, I have a, a fiance. You're not going to mess that up. I said, well, what did she say? And he said that she just kept crying and begging him and saying that, uh, to, that she was scared for her life. I mean, he was even telling me that she said she was scared for her life. Okay. Did he know which, why? Which I, in, in the conversation when I said scared for her life, I said, okay, so if she's telling you this, and this is what I'm telling Steve, okay, if she tells you this, then why did you not say, here, come in here with me? I'm, you know, come in here with me, you know, at least get out of, you know, sight or something. You know, if someone's begging you, begging you, then you should know something's serious, okay? He had a nonchalant attitude, okay? Did um, he not believe that she was really scared? My feelings was because I know Angie. She would not have just left mm -hmm. in the middle of a conversation with someone that she was begging to get back with, especially Steve. She would have waited on him to finish his phone call and then finished and, you know, at least said, why, you know, just please, you know, why, you know, or even though he's done told her this, you know, she's still going to want answers. That's just her. She's wanting to clinch on to something. She, you know, so I looked at him. I said, no, Steve, that's, that's just not right. Something's not right here. Something's completely wrong. And he was like, well, I don't know. He said, when I come out from the phone call, she was gone. That's all I know. But he was still there. He was still there. And somebody else was still somebody there. Somebody else was still there. You just don't know who it was. I don't know. Do you remember about what time that was? It, like I said, it was like right there at closing time. You know, that you could tell that they'd done cleaned up, basically. They were probably doing whoever was in the back, which might have been Chris Mooney, because um, I didn't realize he was supposed to be working that night. My main focus was where was Angie, you know. And so whenever I couldn't really get nothing else besides I was just telling her to go on she needed to leave me alone that she wasn't going to ruin my engagement with my sweetheart I was like you know that's messed up Mary left and searched around Petal for Angela but never found her friend but she didn't know that Angela was in the process of moving into an apartment in Hattiesburg that weekend with her Crystal's co-worker Paula Kraft I went to different places I went to Texaco um I had ended up seeing a couple of my friends there and asking them and they were like I haven't seen her in weeks you know or something like that so I was just like okay I got to find her you know this is this ain't this ain't her so I'm thinking okay well I'll wait and see if I can find her somewhere riding around in pedal looking for somebody, you know, because this just ain't right. I had a gut feeling something was terribly wrong. 
Mary told me that she has never considered that Angela may have returned to Pizza Hut after she herself talked to Stephen early Friday morning, September 10th. But after talking to Pizza Hut employees about the time they saw her and comparing it to what Mary remembers having gotten to Pizza Hut around closing time, which was 10 p.m. Thursdays, I wonder if Angela's mom was right in one of her theories. That got into an argument. Because when they said when he come back in there, he was very angry. Okay, and I believe he said, "Well, we'll meet. We'll meet you at the place where we always meet." Okay. Um. I I have to believe that I that she wouldn't have went out there if she knew that right. was something that it was going to happen. Regardless. There's a couple of hour discrepancy in when Mary went by Pizza Hut and Stephen told her Angela had just left and when Pizza Hut employee Mike remembers seeing her outside. Remember, Pizza Hut employees saw them argue. Then Mike saw her later in the parking lot after everyone else had gone and he says he didn't see them interact at all. Do you remember the time that you walked out and saw the car and hollered back into him? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was the last night she was seen, so... The time. Um, the time of the... Oh, the time? Well, let's see. I think we closed at 11, and it probably would have been between 12 and 1 when I left. The question remains, those three hours or so between then and when the first person found Angela's abandoned car, what happened to this pregnant young woman who had left a note for her new roommate asking her to leave the door unlatched because she would be back soon, according to a September 93 story in the Hattiesburg American. If you want to do something and get away with it, uh, go to Perry County. You know, that was the old saying. You know, so... Why did people say that? The crookedness back then. You know, um, there was a bunch of crookedness. Uh, but, you know, people stay out of other stuff you know we leave things alone for that very reason if you want to kill someone do it in perry county if i heard that once i heard it a dozen times over the last several months of reporting on the angela freeman case the perry county sheriff in 1993 was carlos herring as i mentioned in the first episode of this podcast when i contacted him he didn't have time to talk to me about the initial investigation, and he apparently still has not found the time or inclination. But I've spoken to a lot of locals since then, and I've heard a lot of, let's just say, less than positive remarks about his time as sheriff. Some folks I spoke to outright called him corrupt and unethical. And while I have not looked into other cases that remain unsolved from his tenure, I am curious how many others were not given due diligence, or perhaps worse? Convictions continue being overturned in this country due to incompetent and unethical officials. Mary went out to the bridge site several times during the initial search for her friend. When they started doing all the searching and stuff, when they said that she was missing and that they had found her car, and where they had found their car, guess what? I loaded up in my car, and I had to go for myself to see 
what where she was supposedly be down there, you know. And where uh, when I got there that day, uh, a friend, another friend of mine's dad, Mr. Brewer, was down there. He was just as upset as I was because he knew us girls were all good friends, us Holly Brewer, all of us, you know. And um, I told Mr. Jerry, I was like, something ain't right about this. He said, no, baby, it's not. I said, I, I mean, because I had seen some reactions that were not reactions that I would have thought that would have been done during this type of thing. I, there was tears that I should have seen that I didn't see. Um, emotions that I didn't see that I should have saw. So I'm, I'm looking for these, you know, these different things. And this is out and at the bridge? This is out at the bridge. And um, I asked him, I was like, where did they take her car? Oh, they, they took it to her mom's house. I'm like, do what? Why is it not at the department getting fingerprinted and blood tested and stuff like that in case there is anything that they can find? I mean, this is supposed to be, this is a missing person. And and you're a teenager and you're thinking all these questions. Right. I'm like, what the heck, you know? So he starts tearing up, you know, and I'm tearing up because this is my best friend and I, I want her back. I want her to enjoy my kids like the way I wanted my sister to, and um, vice versa. And uh, so I sat, uh, we walked back and forth, and we were just trying to just comprehend anything. We were looking off in the water as if we were going to find something, you know. Deborah eventually sold the car. The taillight and evidence at the Petal Police Department at the time was given to the man who purchased it because he went to the station and simply asked for it. Just one of the numerous errors we have reported on in this case. And here we are, more than two and a half decades later, no arrests, no charges, and no Angela. Over the years, Deborah has had little or no contact with any of Angela's friends or former boyfriends. Deborah had not known Larry Posey at the time of her daughter's disappearance, but had been very close to Stephen Lindsay in the past, she says. She has had encounters with both Stephen and Larry in the years since, and they couldn't have been more different, according to Deborah. Now, I did see him. Um, Angel disappeared in 93. I, I worked at um, a restaurant for about nine years at the time. I didn't think I'd ever going to leave, but <laughs> after she disappeared, I couldn't handle people asking me stuff. Right. I, didn't, I didn't know how to handle stuff like that. And I um, was off for, I don't know, mm-hmm. six or seven months, and I had a friend of mine call me, and he was opening up an Arby's and knew me and wanted to know if I would go to work. And um, I said, so I said, okay, fine. So I went to work. He had he was in the mall out there, the old mm-hmm. mall, and uh, worked there. And then he opened up one. It's a uh, pharmacy now, but it was a gas station, and it had an Arby's in it. Okay. So we had the grand opening. He put me in a stupid clown suit. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and my brother, Roger, happened to come by that day. Oh, my gosh. I, I still hadn't lived that down. But anyway, um, I worked there, too. And anyway, he got, it wasn't a few months after he opened, he got killed in a car accident. Yeah, he flipped his vet coming back from Jackson. It was raining and broke his neck. And anyway, before that, I was working in the front, and um, I was training this girl, and I looked up, and there was a head there, so I ran up to the front, and guess who it was? Stephen. This is the first time I've seen him. I looked at him, and I said, well, hey. <laughs> um, so I said, I hadn't seen you since Angela's disappearance, or Angela's been missing. Yeah. And he said, oh, I, 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 I've been busy going to college. You could tell he wanted to get away. You could tell it. So I said, okay. I said, what kind of sandwich can I get you? And he looked at me and he said, uh, could, wow. I get, could I get a glass of water? And just a couple of years ago, Deborah met Larry for the first time. She didn't know who he was until he spoke to her. Labor Day weekend, I'm working up here at Subway, Subway by myself. Okay. This gentleman walks in. He gets in the middle of the restaurant and he just stops. And I'm, you know, I'm by myself, you know, and I'm sort of, you know. Yeah. Like, what is this point? Actually, he just stands there and he just kept looking at me. So then he says, son, get over and get you a drink out of that cooler. We stopped here to get drinks. Okay. The little boy gets over and gets a drink. Comes to the restaurant and the guy says, I'm ringing him up and I tell him the price and he said, I said, so-and-so, and he's taking out his wallet. You can tell it's real slow. And I'm like, oh, God, I hope he ain't pulling out no gun. Right. <laughs> you know, you know. And then he said, he said, uh, is your name Stuart? I sort of laughed, you know, and I thought, that's what I used to go by. I don't go by that mm-hmm. no more like that. He said, I want to tell you something. I looked at him. I said, okay. I, said, I want to let you know I didn't murder your daughter. And I look, and I blast that, and I said, who are you? Oh, I bet the, I bet the hair on your arm stood up. Oh, and my And he said, goodness. I, I mean, Larry Posey. Because I didn't know what the guy looked like. I'd never seen him. Oh. Oh, that's right. I never met him. So then he said, I said, I looked at him. I said, Larry, I'm going to tell you something. I know for a fact you didn't murder my daughter. He had to hug my neck before he left that place. Tell me another thing. Why in the world would you stop at a subway to get a drink? No, there's other gas stuff. He, didn't, he, didn't, he, didn't, he said he didn't know I let work there. He said, I have no idea. Because nobody stops the subway just to get, get a Get a drink, no. I'm telling you, it's, it's all, I can't explain it. It's all. But I think God was testing me inside to see what I felt like towards him. Yeah. Yep. How long ago was that? It wasn't this Labor Day that's coming up. Yeah. It wasn't last year. Wait, the airport, yeah. And there's other things I can tell you the last few years. I can't, I can't explain it. And then uh, after that, it was, we were in uh, Wiggins, Walmart. We had stopped to get some groceries. It was like two, maybe three weeks, four weeks later. And we went to the produce. And guess who come up to me and hugged my neck? Larry Posey. Another thing is, Larry Posey told me he did not kill my daughter. The other one's never told me anything. After more than 20 years of being questioned about Angela Freeman, Larry Posey says he tries not to think about Angela's disappearance, 
but having a cloud over him has made this difficult, he told me back in the summer when he called me from Kuwait, where he was stationed. Larry also told me he remembers the day he met Deborah for the first time. He offered his thoughts as to what may have happened to Angela that night. I, to this day, I have not talked to Nick. Um, I, I have not talked to her brother to this day. Um, I was going to this one. I had 2014, maybe. I had moved to Wiggins. And I started working. Um, no, I went. I was drilling down in Gulfport. Uh, and I wanted something to eat one day. And I stopped at uh, Subway. And I looked. And a tear came in my mind. And I said, that's got to be Miss Stewart. And I said, Miss Deborah, do you know who I am? And she said, I forgot what she said. I don't know if she said, I remember you or, or I don't know. I forgot what she said. And we got to talk and I was like, Miss Deborah, I'm looking at you in your eye. I have I didn't have anything to do with um, the and your daughter. And ever since that day, um, her and I have been, you know, talking. Uh, and she, in her heart, she knows that I don't have I didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, I'm upset because that could be my child. And I told her recently um, that I wanted to talk to Nick. Cause the only time I talked to Nick is when Angela and I was talking, and that, like I said, Angela uh, and I seen him once. Yeah. But I mean, I don't really think about it a lot. But when it comes on the news or something reminds me of her, um, even the little car she had, you know, um, I think about her. Um, now it hurts that. Right. Well, this is the last question I'm going to ask you. What do you think happened to her? Three things I think could happen to her. Um, one, um, the Moody Boys. Um, two, um, her stepdad. And three, Lindsay. The reason why I said the Moody Boys because they was doing the horrible things down there at the same time in that bridge. Right, right. I don't even know what the bridge is. And what she talked about was, um, she said that, um, that um, when I came up there, it was God, you know what I'm saying? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, pointing me in that direction. But I would like to know. Um, I'm, I'm just hoping that she just pops up one day, you know? Angela's brother Nicholas told me he thinks people involved in this case have become complacent and the case can't be solved that way. There's always this case is going to be solved and somebody's going to have to step on some tape. There's got to be some stuff to Every, every case, case has ever been solved, you would have to step on some toes. So the DA or whatever, you're going to have to do what you got to do 
make that DA and I say, yeah, let's do this. You're going to have to get something on it and say, look, you're going to do this. This case needs to be solved. This, this community is one. 25 years later, how many missing person cases have you seen that people are still interested in? Every day you wait is a day wasted. We wholeheartedly agree and are excited to see big changes in law enforcement and in the Angela Freeman investigation coming out of the Perry County Sheriff's Office. Today, the Sheriff of Perry County is Mitch Nobles, a gregarious native of the modern community who is 40 and is the youngest person ever to be elected sheriff there in 2016 when he was just 37 years old. In 1993, when Angela went missing, Nobles was in high school, just a couple of years younger than Angela. Well, if you take year 2018 versus 1993, the advancement of law enforcement, the advancement of right. training, the, 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 the classes that we have now that wasn't available yeah. back then, how to collect DNA, how to mm -hmm. preserve evidence. Did we even have DNA change. evidence in 93? I don't think it was being used a whole lot. So things that. were just saved? Yeah, in it was DNA to a certain, but not as intense as they can do it now. I can't give you a whole lot of the details right. about that other than, like I said, Rusty has shown me everything he yeah. had from the start to the finish, or not the finish, but to Yeah, and I know he's, he's working today. hard. And he has been, and, uh, and he keeps me up to date. Him and I communicate probably mm -hmm. every couple months. We'll talk about it. And uh, Miss Deborah, like I said, I usually hear from her at least once a month, and uh, I'm pretty constant facing. Yeah. She's got me on Facebook. She'll send me stuff and back and forth. And uh, when this missing person case came about, that we're working on now, you know, she reached out, I think, to the family maybe and talked to them, you know, yeah. you know if anybody I know, knows, I love that knows, about her, you know. that she's really become a better advocate for other she people, has. too. And, uh, she has, and, and, I, and I told her, and the way she looked at this coming in, I believe, is the new sheriff comes in, but I, I, I can't force hands to no one. Right. Russ is doing his job on yeah. it, and I'm not, but I still can't force hands, I couldn't even force hands on him Right. To a certain extent, but he has done what he told yeah. me to do. There's others in yeah. higher powers. That, and I know uh, that he wants it to be enough that does. when the DA gets it, it will be yeah, win case. winnable, yeah, prosecutable, and winnable, not just. But uh, and I don't want to speak for her. I'll let her tell you that. You mm -hmm. can revisit with her. But she's got a different outlook on it. And I like her outlook on it. You mm -hmm. know, the way she's looking at it. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a gamble that I think she's worth willing to take. She is. You know, the thing that's impressive to me is the fact that she's willing to take a gamble yeah. you know, on, on this. And, yeah. and it could end up on the bad side, you know, yeah. not in her favor, it could end up in her favor. Right. Noble said the mistakes in Angela's case changed a lot of the misconceptions and assumptions that used to happen in cases all the time. Every suspicious scene is now assumed to be a crime scene upon arrival. And, and I can assure mm -hmm. you that since that case has taken place, it's probably why a lot of the missing people are looked at a little bit harder. Right. Than now, there are certain ones. You get a runaway juvenile. But I think she might have went with a boyfriend. You contact the family. Yeah, she was with, so, you know, I mean, at that point, no, you don't go make a big crime scene. You mm -hmm. know, she done it off with a boyfriend down the road for a few yeah. hours, you know. But uh, but in majority, if we start, if we get one, mm -hmm. and we tell you know first they got to come file the report, and if they don't make the report, then and how long do they have to wait to do that? Well, there's no period now. No, see, they can enter them on as a missing person immediately. Really? Can, yeah, they changed the 48 hour rule or the 24 hour rule. I think is what it used to be. Okay. You can put them on NCIC as soon as you find. 
I followed up on what's going on in the investigation with Sheriff Nobles last week. We hadn't talked since our initial meeting back in the summer of last year. Hello. Sheriff? Uh Uh-huh. Hi, this is Beth Christian. How are you? Oh, doing good, Beth. How you doing? Good. It's nice to hear your voice again. Yes, and uh, well, I've, I've actually been uh, uh, listening to the, uh, I just started it, but I started listening to your podcast. I, I kind of put off not doing it, not doing it, and uh, I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and start listening to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I already know this case. I don't need to listen to none of that. I don't want it to, you know, I didn't want it to persuade anything of my thoughts, or it hasn't, uh, and, and what I, what my theory still is, you know, but... But by listening to that, it's, it, it, it turned, I mean, it motivated me, I'll be honest with you. Telling Lives is proud to have had a part in telling Angela's story, and we hope this is just a pause and that progress toward a solution will be soon. If nothing else, knowing it's gotten people talking again about finding Angela and her killer may lead the right people to talk to the investigators in charge. This is the power of journalism. Investigative journalism can be a powerful tool for law enforcement, even if it's simply a reminder or motivator that someone is watching what's being done. Yes, and, and I like I said, I, I'll give you props to your to your podcast. You've done a good job on it. Well, thank you so much. Journalism is called the fourth estate for a reason, that being to serve the public interest, to remain independent and call out injustices and abuses of power. Finally, we want to thank all who have reached out with information and with stories about Angela. We also appreciate hearing from you about missing and unsolved cases that you think we might be able to shed light on. We have not decided where the next season of Telling Lives will take us. We are also planning to do several single-episode stories of interesting folks we've met during the course of telling Angela's life story. And when there are developments in this case, we promise we will be back to bring you the information. Telling Lives is brought to you by reporter, writer, and host Elizabeth Christian, producer Brian Manuel, associate producer Jerry Clark, Reporter and researcher Alina Noakes. Original music by Nicholas Freeman. If you like this episode, subscribe to Telling Lives Podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you have any information about the disappearance of Angela Freeman, contact us at tellinglivespod at gmail.com. There is a $12,000 reward for anyone with information leading to the arrest of the person responsible for Angela Freeman's disappearance. Contact Rusty Keys at the University of Southern Mississippi Police Department. Special thanks goes to Louisiana College for partial funding support for this project. Luke eight seventeen.